Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius Podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now back to the show. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. Uh, my guest is Stephen Hinshaw. Uh, he has a PhD. He's a distinguished professor of psychology at University of California, Berkeley. Uh, the book that he wrote we're going to talk about is Another Kind of Madness, A Journey Through the Stigma and Hope of Mental Illness. So we're going to talk about that and his work as a professor of psychology. Welcome, Steve. Thank you. Thank you. Well, if you would tell me a bit about your background and... Um, you know, why you're in, interested in this area that you, you know, of mental illness that you're interested in. So, uh, the, the precise reason is exactly the topic of the book, Another Kind of Madness. I grew up in the Midwest. I grew up in Columbus, Ohio, and dad was a professor of philosophy at Ohio State. My mom was a lecturer in English and in history. Uh, my little sister and I, in some ways, had this idyllic light, kind of a university, um, community that we were in, dad had been a professor since the age of 25. We had 50-yard line seats at Ohio Stadium to see the Buckeyes. You know, what could go wrong? Well, what went wrong was when I was very little and on through my childhood, dad would vanish as if abducted by aliens in the thin air for a month, three months, six months, or at one point when I was in third wow. year at a time. Holy cow. And I didn't know where he was. I didn't know if he was alive or dead. What I didn't know until I was 18 Returned back to Columbus for my first spring break back from college on the East Coast. When my dad pulled me aside into his study at home, he had all the books on philosophy and math and literature, and he said, son, it's time you learned some secrets about my life. Now, I knew something was really wrong, but it was so mysterious. Dad would be gone once in third grade. Mom said, your father's resting in California. It's best if you ask no more questions. I saw that look in her eye. I thought, I better not ask any more questions. And then one day he'd appear, he'd be cooking breakfast for my sister and me before school. No, welcome back. And, you know, it was very mysterious and very silent. What I learned when I had turned 18, my first spring break back uh, to, to Columbus, was that dad had been diagnosed with schizophrenia since the age of six. He told me all about uh, what's the opening scene in Another Kind of Madness when he was 16. Uh, becoming quickly manic. No one knew that then. And hearing voices, this is in 1936, that he was the sole person on earth who could save the free world from Hitler and Mussolini. Mm. 
So on that fateful dawn, after he'd been wandering the streets of Pasadena for about three days and nights, he climbed up the trellis to the roof of the home and knew he could fly because his arms had become wings, as he told me. And he jumped off the roof to send the message to the leaders. Well, of course, a second later, he crashed to the pavement below, uh, had a concussion, broke his left wrist. His brothers came rushing out of the house. What, what's happened? And he spent six months in an adult mental hospital with uh, some fairly mentally challenged and physically deformed people. He told me that first talk that he realized that he was as flawed mentally as they were physically. Uh, no school worked on the garbage crew, nearly starved to death at the facility because uh, he believed the Nazis had poisoned the food supply. So his dad was called in for last rites. And then six months later, suddenly, with no treatment, there was no therapy, no medications, he got better and went back to 12th grade. And so his life of real strong achievement, he went on to go to Stanford, got a PhD in philosophy at Princeton. He studied with Bertrand Russell and Albert Einstein. I mean, quite a career but periodically interrupted by what we now know as very serious episodes of bipolar disorder, hearing voices, quite disrupted, thinking he was the savior, but nobody ever talked about it. Mm. In fact, when I was little, just to wrap up this first kind of segment here, he went to his psychiatrist over Ohio State and said, what do I tell my little children there? They're in kindergarten, preschool, about my absences and my illness. And yeah. never forget what he told me that, fateful afternoon, 1971, in his study, he said, my doctor looked me in the eye and said, Professor Henshaw, if your children ever learn of your, what they thought was schizophrenia and hospitalizations, they'll be permanently destroyed. You and your wife, their mother, are never allowed to discuss it or they'll be permanently destroyed. Any. So the doctor's orders back in the 50s and still the 60s, it's so shocking, it's so painful, it's so toxic, you can't even bring it up. So I lived my, I mean, sports and school were my refuge. I wasn't smart enough to apply to school, to college out in California. So I went back east to Harvard, about as far away as I could. But that first conversation was a revelation. Number one, hey, schizophrenia runs in families. I took a psych course and realized that the adoption and twin studies were coming out of Scandinavia. This, this runs in families through genes. So maybe I'm at risk. I better be careful. But second... I went back from spring break and changed my major to psychology. I've got a mission now. I got what, what caused this? I, I didn't sound like schizophrenia to me. And I really diagnosed him a few years later with bipolar disorder. I now studied every psych topic I could, did volunteer work, ended up working for several years before I went back to grad school in clinical psychology. And this is what, this is what my life has been. So is your focus schizophrenia or is it um, bipolar disorder and other mental... Yeah, so it's a it's a fair question. What I really did in college, I was a big brother and a housing project to two boys without a father. I taught in a prison. The year undergrads could go in and teach psych courses then. I worked at a community mental health center with a psychiatrist, a social worker, uh, and a psychologist, and I would make home visits. I kind of identified with lonely kids or kids who were lost, because that's what I'd felt like. I mean, what happens when you're a kid and something is drastically wrong? And nobody talks about it. I mean, I think there's fundamentally two choices. Number one, as a kid, you think the world's a random, cruel, awful place, not a very healthy attribution to have. Or number two, it must be my fault. Maybe I wasn't good enough when dad was home. Or maybe if I asked too much, because I knew I was allowed to ask when he was gone, it would impede his coming back. So I was prone to a lot of self-blame, depression, 
depression and bipolar disorder tend to run in families. And so I'd been really a child and developmental clinical psychologist working with kids with ADHD or learning problems or depression or all kinds of other conditions. But guess what? When you work with samples and you do longitudinal research and you follow them into adolescence, they turn into adults. So I'm really, I'm interested in the entire spectrum of mental and neurodevelopmental conditions and genes and families and schools, and especially in my last 25 years, how can we overcome this pernicious stigma? My dad never told his colleagues that he was a professor with for 49 years about his diagnosis. They knew he'd be gone in a hospital from time to time, but my mom's mom, my maternal grandmother in Columbus, thought that her son-in-law was off to a hospital for some unknown physical ailment. You didn't talk about schizophrenia or manic depression or bipolar disorder because it was probably the family's fault or you were internally flawed. And the shame was so great that, I mean, if my dad hadn't had tenure at age 30, mm. he'd have lost his job. I mean, he would, he acted very really wild in the classrooms when he was, you know, on his runs. And, what, what did you do? Um, what did your mother do when he would disappear for periods of time? Well, she was the hero. She grew up in Columbus, met a grad student, this magnetic young professor in philosophy. They got set up on a blind date. He was athletic. He was handsome. He had brilliant ideas about the nature of ethics in the world and the philosophy of science and fell in love. But during their courtship, my mom told me, because I had a lot of separate conversations with her over the years too. She said, Steve, what what did your father tell me when we were engaged? He said, honey, I had a little trouble in high school. And then again at Princeton, where he got his PhD and then was shipped to Byberry State Hospital, Philadelphia State, the closest thing to a concentration camp America had in the mid-40s. You wouldn't tell your fiancé in the late 40s, early 50s that you had chronic schizophrenia, that you wouldn't be marriage material. So she learned the hard way. When she was pregnant with me and then pregnant with my sister a year and a half later, dad went into very psychotic, what are called mixed episodes, the energy of a mania, the despair of depression, and wasn't present for either of our births. So she white-knuckled it and kept us kids going and hoped and prayed he would return one day, which he always did, but with no communication in the interim. So now, when she was 50, I'll just say one more thing. With no known rheumatoid arthritis in our family... I was hiking with her. I'd graduated from college, and she suddenly got very stiff. Within six months, she'd been diagnosed with severe crippling rheumatoid arthritis, which she had for the next 40 years until she died uh, at 90. And I have a hunch that the stress and the shame and stigma of keeping everything silent all those years probably did a number on her immune system. I'm sure, yeah. Yeah. So she was a silent hero. So today, is your focus uh, schizophrenia only, or is it, again, more broad within your So I'm really interested in neurodevelopment, kids with autism spectrum, kids with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, kids with learning disorders. I'm very interested in adolescence and adulthood, more psychotic disorders like schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. But I'm really interested in, regardless of the condition, two or three things. Number one, for most of the 20th century, Parents were directly blamed for their kids' autism. They were refrigerator parents. They were so cold, the kid never formed an attachment. Or if your kid had schizophrenia, well, you must have been a schizophrenogenic mother, bold, aloof, demanding, and hostile. So the the, the adolescent had to form an uh, alternative reality, a psychotic reality. So 
Yeah, we know that's so much nonsense these days. These are highly genetically transmitted conditions. On the other hand, for schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, ADHD, learning problems, how a family interacts and rises to the challenge and stops blaming themselves and the kid and gets supports and treatment can make all the difference for outcome. So I'm interested in the spectrum of what's typical and neurotypical behavior. When do we define it as mentally ill or neurodevelopmentally disordered? And how can we integrate biology and families and schools and communities to get that person help? And then the second thing I'm really focused on, as I mentioned a minute ago, is what can we do to change the discussion, to, to eradicate the stigma that's still present uh, in the 21st century? Hmm. Um, I mean, now autism is diagnosed pretty often from what I've seen. Yep. Uh, there seems to be quite a bit of support for it. But what is the current state now? If a parent has a child that, you know, appears to be on the spectrum, as they say, what what will they experience? Is it a huge range still, or is it far better? It's a huge range. It's getting better. So let me go back in time to the time I was a kid, and I didn't know it then, but sociologists were doing something called the General Social Survey, which is kind of like a census, but on the fifth year, uh, not the even, you know, the decade years. A lot of questions on health and stuff. And one of the parts of this was stigma studies. That random sample general population would hear a vignette or read a vignette about somebody with hyperkinesis, as it was called then, or depression or schizophrenia, et cetera, et cetera, and then respond with how much they knew about it. But more importantly, would they ever really want to get close with such an it? What do we now know 60 plus years later? For just about every mental and neurodevelopmental condition under the sun, the American public has far more knowledge. There's psychology courses in high school. It's all over the media these days. But attitudes, would you uh, ride on the trolley or bus with? Would you work with, do a school project with? Would you go out with? Would you let your daughter marry? Those attitudes have not changed in commensurate status with the knowledge. In fact, three times more people today than in the 50s, if they hear the term mental illness, autism, et cetera, et cetera, um, Think of the person as uh, inherently dangerous and violent. So knowledge alone is good, but it's attitudes. It's one flew over the cuckoo's nest. It's the snake pit mental hospitals my dad was in. And now that we've closed most of them down, 92, 93% of the beds, where do people end up with very chronic schizophrenia and other forms of mental illness and substance abuse on the streets, not smelling very good, without a home? So the stereotypes continue. In very recent years, the last year or two, colleagues of mine, Bernice Pesco-Solito, a great sociologist at Indiana University, who now runs the National Stigma Survey, has found that for the first time in the history of research on this, the American public is now much more accepting of depression than, again, since the 40s and 50s, since this research started. But no change or even a worsening about schizophrenia, because those are the people that hear voices, or substance abuse, because those are the people who choose to put stuff uh, in their mouths or in their veins, et cetera. So a bit of a sea change is happening, but we've got a long way to go. And it's, so it's not just factual knowledge, it's discussion, it's what's happened with breast cancer for women and prostate cancer for men. Cancer was highly stigmatized back in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. You'd never put in the obituary that your grandpa or grandma died of cancer. They died of an uh -huh. illness because cancer was a psychosomatic illness medicine you brought on yourself by losing the will to live. Mm. Cancer is now a cause. The NFL dudes wear pink knee socks one Sunday every fall uh, in support of breast cancer research. 
And I often ask students and people that I talk with, and what color knee socks do the NFL dudes wear to support mental health research? It's a trick question. There is no knee sock for mental health research. We're the cancer now of 100 years ago. Long way to go to raise public awareness. What are the, um, you know, I've heard it anecdotally from friends, like, you know, one in 10 people seriously mentally ill. That's why society is so crazy, et cetera. But what, what are the, the stats as you know them? So the stats are very interesting. When I was in grad school a few decades ago, we learned that you had schizophrenia or you were, you had bipolar, manic depression or normal. Same for ADHD, et cetera, et cetera. We now know that everything's on a spectrum. We call them the autism spectrum disorders, the bipolar spectrum. Is any of us not disorganized a bit of the time? And so when do you have ADHD? 20% of the population hears voices at some time or another, but only a much smaller percent, 1% or 2%, has schizophrenia. A lot of people are moody, but only 3 to 5% have florid bipolar disorder. So everything's on a spectrum. We still don't have in psychiatry and clinical psychology a brain scan or a blood test. With cancer, you pretty much know. With yep. mental conditions, it's still symptoms and judgment, which people think it's kind of imaginary. And... People today also know that, yeah, it's not just bad parenting. It's genes and toxins in the environment, maybe a, a cause in some cases of autism and ADHD, et cetera. But we still don't know whom to blame because I'm doing pretty fine. I, I don't whine about sad mood. Uh, I don't admit I have depression. It's still a sign of weakness or it's perceived to be a sign of weakness to admit to problems needing help, we get our cars tuned up. Why don't we get our heads and bodies tuned up rather than a strength? Yeah, no, it makes sense. Yeah. Um, which which mental conditions appear to be more socially acceptable than others? Well, which ones are still like at the bottom of the barrel? In terms yeah, the, of the, 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 the bottom of the barrel are, it's like um, HIV is more stigmatized than the flu, right? Et cetera, et cetera. COVID's more stigmatized than other uh, viral illnesses. Parity and chronicity are the predictors. So schizophrenia is kind of at the bottom of the barrel. But a lot of people with schizophrenia, if they get the right medications, despite the stereotypes, and get into uh, job training and psychoeducation with their families, recover and have many years of symptoms. Same with bipolar disorder. ADHD is fairly chronic. You don't really ever totally outgrow some fundamental impulse control and attentional problems, but you can learn to cope with it and with the right therapy and the right job, right education, many people thrive. Uh, bipolar disorder and ADHD can be the source of creativity and strength in many people. So it's not either or. You're not doomed to a lifelong, what's like with cancer, people get recovered with treatment. Are they still at risk for remission? You know, from remission back to a relapse? Yes. Same with cardiovascular illness. Yeah. We need to believe that there's hope and Treatment breeds hope, but how many counties in the U.S., the rural counties, don't have one psychologist or psychiatrist? And you go to the big urban centers and the waiting lists are two years long. We can treat many forms of mental illness. We can't cure them. We're not there yet. The brain's pretty complicated. We can treat them and help with recovery as long as people have access to care. But the access is poor. We don't have an organized health insurance system in our country. And... Because of shame and stigma, people don't want to admit to themselves or their families that, that they that then they need to see a shrink. Talk about a stigmatizing term. It's a head shrinker, right? Yeah. Mm. So so in your experience, there is enough available, 
either medicines, psychotherapy, et cetera, yeah. to what significantly pull what, what percentage of people out of mental illness or at least raise them to a level where yeah. the mental illness allows them to be functional. That's Do you exactly. have any estimate on that? Yeah. So you asked for statistics a question or two ago. About one in 20 people here in America and around the world have a severe enough form of mental illness or substance abuse that they can't complete school, relations are shot, jobs are impossible. Another quarter, so we go from 5% to now 25 or 30%, have what we might call a moderately severe form of mental illness, recurrent depression or ADHD that the hyperactivity kind of went away when you hit adolescence, but the poor executive functions and disorganization did not, or recurrent depressions that when they, depressions tend to go in cycles like manias and depressions, and the next one hits and you find yourself hopeless and despondent and suicidal again. If you look across someone's lifetime, half of people around the world will have some form of mental disorder. So it's not uncommon. The majority of those are on the milder side. But you say half of all people, I would half of all people. Yeah, who do you know that doesn't have a phobia of something, of heights or of spiders? I mean, so if we really think about it, the stereotype of you're in a quote loony bin, you're in an insane asylum, you're hearing voices, you're raving, you're aggressive. That's for a couple of percent of the population. And with treatment, such people can recover. Most of the rest of us are on a spectrum of anxiety, and anxiety has been crushing since the pandemic. Yes. Women are twice as liable to depression as men. Uh, men are more liable to aggressive conduct problems and antisocial problems. So it's like, how can you be stigmatized if you're in a majority? Well, women are still stigmatized, and they're 51% of the population. Uh People with mental and neurodevelopmental disorders are stigmatized, even though added up, it's a fairly common experience. We're afraid to admit weakness. Those people with mental illness are sucking away public funds. Uh, we would muck our kids around them. But it's the true stories of recovery rather than the stereotypes, again, of one flew over the cuckoo's nest that I think are, that's fundamental to changing attitude. Mm. You know, it just, I don't know. Again, it's from what I've seen, I don't know if this is accurate, but it seems like uh, unless someone is highly trained, and even if they are a medical person, they handle someone with possible or apparent mental illness is like, you know, they'll, they'll say the professional things, the niceties, things yeah. like that. But it just seems they're like, uh, they're, they're already thinking this person's nuts. They're, they're not, they're not, they're not, they're not, they're not yeah. productive. They're not school material. And so at UC Berkeley, our colors are royal blue and gold, the golden bears. And a few years ago before the pandemic, it's been even more important since, the uh, Chancellor's uh, Commission on Student Mental Health put out to every faculty, you know, would have been a spiral ring, a binder a decade ago, now it's online, the blue folder and the gold folder. And I for, always forget which is which, but one is uh, resources, a student in your class is struggling. Here's how they can get access to free services at Student Mental Health Center. Uh, here's peer-to-peer counseling. And the goal folder is not to train an English or physics professor to be a psychiatrist, but uh, sudden change in motivation, apathy, uh, maybe uh, eyes dilated, could be substance abuse. Look for warning signs and encourage students to reach out. The, the professors don't have to diagnose teens and young adults. If this is the period of onset of a lot of these things we're talking about. And you want to be like everybody else. You want to be accepted. And who wants to be an ADHD or a bipolar person or 
an autistic person, but with support groups and advocacy groups where you can take pride in being a part of a group with others like you and hear about people's successes and not stereotypes, this is the kind of thing that's going to change change the tide, Richard. This is this is where we're going to have a different level of the it's the level of discourse about cancer is very different from 75 years ago and the hope is especially with teens and young adults who are very eager to be authentic and if the good side of social media a lot of people disclose we might have a very different conversation in 10 20 or 30 years yeah that's He's, certainly that's certainly um, i've heard there's a shortage of uh you know therapists psychologists psychiatrists i mean what, what are the numbers look like there how bad is it if we doubled or tripled the number of psychiatric residency programs or clinical psychology or social work training programs, we still would be short. We need some different models of care. So here's an, a, a factoid, but it's very interesting. Um, if, if schizophrenia exists in 1% to 2% of people around the world, obviously with psychotic features, waxes in ways that can be quite severe, genes are largely responsible, where do you move if you get schizophrenia? Do you move to New York City or L.A. or San Francisco or Chicago, the urban centers with the most therapists and meds? You move to India or Africa because without psychiatry or psychology or medication, it's somewhat expected that a lot of teens and late teens are going to run amok in some way. And there's a place for them, schooling, jobs, a place to live, when they kind of come back into the more normative range. So we need to... And of course, in the United States, if, if you don't go to college right away, there's something wrong. If you fall off the track, you're irreparable. This mm. highly achievement-driven culture doesn't cause these forms of mental illness per se, but it sure gets in the way of acceptance and recovery. So, yeah, yeah. And, and of course, the other side of the coin, which is um, we need a lot more research on it. Let's use tech. Let's use AI. Let's use apps. Everybody's got a cell phone these days. Uh, pretty much. And how can you deliver online therapy, text reminders, or apps to help with your attention or mood regulation? The research so far shows that if you just leave it to an app and call it a day, it's it can help some people, but you need to combine the app with occasional actual contact with a human. Yeah. Check up and, and monitor. And that could be, and that's a big uh, avenue these days for getting greater access to much, much greater numbers. Of the people that have gone through treatment that were really bad, you know, they were, they were suffering big time. They were way out of it. When they come back, how do they describe what they felt like? You know, someone that, I don't know if your dad did this or just other patients you see or yeah. literature, you know, when someone's like incredibly bipolar and they come off of it or they're, they have a schizophrenic episode, they like really do crazy stuff and then they come out of it. How do they describe how they felt while they were in it? Very interesting. There's a little bit of psychological, psychiatric literature on this. For somebody with really severe psychotic level names or schizophrenic episodes, there may be a little bit of amnesia for the kind of worst of the episode when you come at it, which in some ways might be helpful. You don't want to, you know, yeah. bask in it or, or meld in it all the time. But for serious depression, people talk about it being the worst disease you can ever have because it's not in your lungs or your heart or your legs or arms. It's in your mind and you feel as though you're slowly choking. And you also feel, you know, inevitably almost for people who get sufficiently depressed, you're a burden on everybody else. Everybody would be better off if you 
So rather than the common stereotype that how selfish it ruins families and is still illegal in some states and countries, people who are despairing enough to be actively suicidal may feel that they're really doing everybody a favor because they're so guilty and self-blaming and they don't they don't want to be a bother anymore. Um, people come back from psychotic experiences and say, well, you know, initially I heard those voices, and especially if you're manic, you know, I, I could be a savior, I create inventions, but soon enough, the hallucinations and delusions, these voices and these very fixed beliefs, take on a malevolent stance, nobody understands you, and they're a source of real isolation and despair. So people have uh, a lot of different accounts of such experiences, but rarely are they uniformly positive. Yeah, I've seen, you know, well, it's like, um, I guess like the Lord of the Rings, when he had Gollum and Smeagol, and Smeagol was when he was nice. Yep. And when he was Gollum, he was very suspicious, and he said the same things over and over and talked to himself. I know that's not, it's a little bit of the uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, but for yeah. people with... But do you, do you see that? Is that a good well, analog how some people are? Well, I mean, depressions, if if you or I have one serious depression in our lives, what are the odds we'll have another? About 50. Well, really, it elevates. Once you have one, you're more likely to have another? Or not? Yes. But, okay. but and, and uh, genes contribute to this, early trauma could contribute to this. But let's say you and I, Richard, have a second. Now it's about 70% chance... Or more that we'll have a third, and and so on. Mm. Once you are your brain in some ways gets sort of entrained, it doesn't take as much loss or as much external pressure to trigger the next depression. Now that's even truer of bipolar disorder, where mm. one manic episode is way more than fifty percent likely to end up in other manic episodes or depression, or in some ways the worst of both worlds when you have a manic energy and depressed despair at the same time. We call them mixed episodes. Schizophrenia is episodic. Um, but you know, other people, you know people like this, um, they're a little bit sad all the time. They never really meet criteria for a suicidal major depression, but it's more of a, a, a personality trait. So um, there's a lot of different ways of presentation of different mental conditions, depending on the genes in your family, depending on how early it's detected. And depending, particularly, if you can open up and get peer support and get access to care. Mm. But how do people come back from schizophrenia, let's say? You know, what if someone's, I don't know, 25, had seven or eight episodes? According so, to one calculus, you said they're very likely more. It, it raises the odds, but those are the odds across everybody. Maybe there's a medication they haven't tried before. Or maybe, in some cases, when you hit middle age, whatever that means today, somewhere between 30 and 80, I guess. Mm, yeah. Some of the cyclic conditions tend to abate and wisdom comes in, or you learn to cope with the symptoms better. Many people with ADHD, with a really supportive partner or with a job that's not too rote or utterly challenging, but where you can kind of be your own boss and call your own shots and not punch a time clock, you still have the underlying organizational and self-regulation issues but they're not as noticeable because you're in a setting that's inherently more supportive. So it's not just that how do we fix people's brains to make everybody normal? Nobody's normal, right? Everybody's on a spectrum of one or more traits that can lead to mental disorders, and we're all in it together. And the more supportive we can be to have job opportunities and to have educational opportunities and to stop hiding behind the, you know, there for the grace of God go I. I'm glad I'm not 
bipolar like her or schizophrenic like him, um, we could have both a more just society and a much more productive one. Think of the workplace. What could employers do to have wellness checks and to encourage exercise or meditation rooms or to not just have an exit interview when you quit or are fired, but have an entry interview so the employers and the CEO and everybody can get a sense of what your needs are. Mm. I think we could, if we restructure the whole system, that's going to do as much as individual treatments or apps. I think we we need to see. Well, well, okay. So let's say um, you know I, I have bipolar disorder or schizophrenia. It appears to be controlled. I apply for a job. Yep. I tell them. Yeah. Do I tell them when I apply? Do I tell them after they hire me and I walk in day one? Say surprise, guys, and I just want to let you know, like. Yeah. What what so th- this do people do what happens? This is a very good question. So thirty three years ago this July will be the anniversary of the ADA, the Americans with Disabilities, signed by George Bush one in the summer of nineteen ninety. And in the United States it is illegal to discriminate against anyone with a physical or mental disability in public or in the workplace. So this was a landmark act. Now, a couple of things. Who brings the most suits proportionally in, of the population against, you know, under ADA? People in wheelchairs, people who are, have physical limitations. Um, it's going to cost money to build a ramp or widen the bathroom door or front door, et cetera. But it's more acceptable. The physical illnesses are not, and, and disabilities aren't as stigmatized as they were a century ago. Yeah, I know with, with mental people, illness, yeah, it, it's, it's hard. Illness. It's hard. I it's hard to be sympathetic sometimes, especially yeah, if someone's real easy to you. They are not going to work hard. And and here's the irony: what are the most accommodate? What, what are the usual accommodations uh, for people with agoraphobia? Well, you work on the first floor; you don't have to go in an elevator up to floor five, or you have flex time, so you see your psychologist during lunch and work an extra hour. It, it's it's paradoxical that the stigma still doesn't allow people to feel that they can disclose. But back to your very pointed question, if it's me, I don't tell the interviewer, but once I got the job, and especially if it's a big enough group, maybe there's HR uh, and a lot of businesses now really want to promote mental health, then I'm going to disclose with with the support around me to get the accommodations I need. So, you know, people ask me all the time, you know, your story of your dad and Steve, your own depressions, you know, the genetic kind of lie, you know, legacy of dad's bipolar, my own depressions, probably from my childhood experiences. And well, what do I do? So, you know, during the pandemic, we didn't really have classes at Berkeley and now everybody's back pretty much, but I don't wear a sandwich board when I will go from lecture hall. I don't wear, dad had bipolar and I've had depression. Disclosure is about rehearsal and timing and support. I know who I want to tell. I have a support group around me. I practice. So, but but what we can't have is what I grew up with back in Ohio in the 50s and 60s. Mental illness was so shameful, it would permanently destroy a family to even mention it. If we have that, oh. yeah, we're, we're at ground zero. We're, we're nowhere, Phil. So um, your, your question is a very pertinent one. Um, timing, rehearsal, and support, you get to decide to whom you disclose and when, and which you know, didn't exist in my dad's day, of course, but the Depression and Bipolar Support Alliance, or NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness, or Active Minds, or Bring Change to Mind, uh, high school college groups for people. 
there's a lot of places to get support that didn't exist a generation ago. Hmm. Yeah, that's excellent. Yeah, it's well, I know we're, we're getting close to running out of time, but um, you know, I've had some experience with people in my family that have had pretty serious conditions, and it's hard because you just you want to get mad at them. You know, why why are you acting this way? Why are you saying these things? What's wrong with you? Stop doing that. You you know you you don't have to do this type thing. It's it's really hard. It's really hard. And you know, well, one way to maybe encourage some sensitivity, although it's very frustrating at times, I totally agree with you. We don't, I mean, we used to call people with glasses four eyes. Yeah. You were weak and then there were contacts. And um, But most of us don't say to uh, somebody in the next cubicle beside us in tech or in university or in broadcasting or whatever you do, you know, if you just tried harder, you wouldn't need, you could throw those glasses because you could train your optic nerve and your retina. It's like, what, what are you talking about? Yeah. But it's okay to say to somebody with ADHD, just come on, everybody loses focus. There's a substantial genetic liability for some people really having problems regulating their attention as the situation changes. They're usually trying as hard as they can. It's like telling a kid with dyslexia, just try harder to learn to read. Your brain is wired differently. It's going to take more regular and more intentional strategies to do that. So, But I think we all are bred (laughs) believe that if it's behavior and emotion, you know, darn it, we can control it. We can pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, but which we don't so much do for physical conditions anymore. But that's part of the attitude change we... Yeah, I'm with you. I agree totally. Well, like I said, we're just about out of time. I want to be respectful of your time. What what are resources for people that know people or they themselves are having some trouble? And um, then I want to ask about your particular book and research uh, where people can find out more about that. So um, if you go to Amazon, not to promote them, they don't need much promotion. Uh, I have an author page and all of my books, including Another Kind of Madness, A Journey Through the Stigma and Hope of Illness, um, is available. It's a pretty gut-wrenching, yet ultimately hopeful portrayal of of the silence my family endured. Um, My last name is Hinshaw, H-I-N- as in Nancy, S-H-A-W, go to www.hinshawlab.com, and that'll get you into the website of my laboratory of grad students and postdocs and other students and uh, staff members who do research on ADHD and mental illness stigma. And then at a global level, uh, Depression and Bipolar Support Alliance, BSA, NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness, um, mm. Uh, bring change to mind. I'm co-scientific advisor. It's a group started by the actor Ben Close. She and her family didn't want to keep silent anymore about uh, many people with pretty severe mental illness in their family. And so one of the things we do, and I helped start, was have clubs in high schools around the country or in 500 or more schools now, not so much mental health clubs. I mean, we need more of those, but anti-stigma clubs. Kids find tools and we have a menu of them for kids to use, and each club has its own unique way of putting it together, to talk about it, start the conversation, mindfulness apps, talking with school administrators, talking with families about attitude change, uh, you know, about bullying, uh, about mental disorders all along the spectrum. And it's young people, Richard, that's, that's where we see the hope. The sea change is going to be with when people in their teens and early 20s now mature into more formal leadership positions. And I think we're going to have the different kind of conversation than we now do with cancer, with respect to cancer. 
I talked about, about mental health in the year. Yeah. Okay. Well, Stephen, thank you very much for coming on the podcast and talking about these uh, difficult issues of your history, which I know is incredibly personal and difficult too. So uh, thank, thank you for coming you, on this and, podcast. Uh, I really appreciate the opportunity uh, and uh, eager for the podcast to, to come out. Excellent. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.